Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to uh, the Non-School of Economics. Uh, I'm Saul Estrin. I'm uh, the uh, Professor of Management and uh, uh, Head of the uh, Department of Management. Um, and I'm happy today to be uh, chairing what is actually the second lecture uh, this week in the Department of Management series, Business in the Global Age. So obviously, uh, Business in the Global Age is speeding up. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm particularly happy today uh, to welcome one of our... Um, uh, well, one of our alums, and indeed one of our, our, our uh, more uh, famous alums, and a man who is still quite closely uh, associated with the development of the school as a governor, uh, Lord Maurice Saatchi. Lord Saatchi studied at the LSE, uh, 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 and was very successful at that, and went on to be even, even more successful, founding the very influential uh, advertising company, Saatchi & Saatchi, uh, which I think it would be fair to say is was important in changing the very way we think about products uh, and our conceptualization and of them and our consumption of them. He was made a peer uh, in 1996 and he's gone on to serve as a shadow cabinet uh, uh, minister for the Treasury and the Cabinet Office and he was co-chair of the Conservative Party. Well, he's talking, uh, the numbers are very high because as you're all aware, He's talking about a particularly interesting t topic just at the moment, which is the United States. As you're all aware, the, the U.S. is um, um, in, in the throes of a rather complicated uh, uh, election. Uh, um, it's highly unpopular uh, in many areas of the world because of its engagement in the Iraq war, and it has a president who I think is one of the most disliked presidents, uh, especially in Europe and in Latin America. And, I, um, and Lord Saatchi is going to talk a little bit about, or a lot about, uh, this issue of the United States. The lecture he's going to talk to us about is entitled Sleeping Beauty, Awakening the American Dream. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Would you allow me, first of all, to say what, um, what a great honor it is to have been asked to contribute to this series, and if I may, I'd like to thank Sir Howard and Professor Estrin for asking me to make this um, contribution tonight. I, I'm going to try to uh, relieve you of the burden of anxiety that can befall a listener to um, a lecture like this, which you would usually be expected to arise about halfway through, and it would occur to you that you weren't completely sure where, where the person who was speaking was actually hidden. So I'm going to try to um, save you from that, but I'm going to take the advice, follow the advice that was given to uh, the young Harold Macmillan when he was about to give his maiden speech in the House of Commons in 1935. He, he had the great good luck to be given advice by the iconic former Prime Minister Lloyd George, who said to the young Macmillan, um, after you've spoken, two men will meet in the bar. One will say to the other, Macmillan gave a great speech. And the other will ask, what did he say? And uh, Lord George said to Macmillan that if the first man couldn't give the second man an answer in a phrase or a short sentence, it wasn't a great speech. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and at least signpost where all this is going by in the simplest possible way, by trying to make a little introduction, and then I'm going to describe a problem, the problem, and then I'm going to describe uh, the solution. And that's how this is all going to unfold. 
Now, I don't know how many um, sad people there are in the world who could or would readily admit that their life is changed, not by um, meeting a beautiful girl or by um, standing in front of a beautiful painting or something, but by reading an article in the Harvard Business Review. But I, I'm one such person. Because many, many years ago, I did find an article in the Harvard Business Review which described then an unknown concept um, called globalization. And I read that this was um, a completely new idea, which was that countries wouldn't any longer organize their affairs on a country-by-country, on country, country profit center-by-profit center basis, and they would uh, try, as we know, they would coordinate their affairs across countries or across whole regions or across the whole world. This was called globalization. And um, this, um, I thought, was going to change the world, which it did, and it certainly changed, it certainly changed my world. And so I saw this, um, this concept of globalization of business as just what I thought of as the latest manifestation of America's intellectual uh, leadership. And, well, of course, it's completely true, because 20 years later or whatever, um, these two words, global and business, which are in the, in the um, heading of this, of this course, this program, well, global and business, they, it spells America, doesn't it? So whatever it was, it worked. To me, this was just another, another tribute to what um, President Herbert Hoover called the American system, and which he said was, he said it was the most definite and positive political and economic and social system as has ever been developed on Earth. And he said this had enabled America to advance to unquestioned, unparalleled greatness. Well, times change. And if Hoover were here today, like most Americans, I think he might be perplexed and confused about the way that America is perceived in the world. He might feel a little like uh, Joseph Kay in Kafka's The Trial. You remember the opening lines? Someone must have laid false accusations against Joseph Kay because one morning he was arrested without having done anything wrong. Accusations against America have spread into a global phenomenon crossing borders, classes, religions, and generations. So should we ask, what would happen if the Statue of Liberty were to come to life? She would weep. She had been a gift from one radical revolutionary nation to another, a vanguard force. But now, according to the critics, she is a mere defender of the established status quo. She had been a beacon of hope for the world. But now, according to the US government, she is the world's number one terrorist target. At her inauguration, the American poet Emma Lazarus had hailed her as the new colossus and put her message in unforgettable terms. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be three. But now the poet's words, ladies and gentlemen, do not bring tears to everyone's eyes. There are now 64,900,000 internet sites which respond to the key word anti-American. In Nigeria, the most popular name for baby boys this year is Osama. So millions have lost hope in America and millions more actively wish it harm. For example, a Eurobarometer survey found that America was seen as the greatest threat to world peace, along with Iran. Even in the UK, 55% of respondents said they view the United States as a threat 
to global peace. In France, for example, while a 1988 survey rated power, dynamism, wealth, and liberty as the words most frequently associated with American society, by 1996, the top choices have become violence, power, inequalities, and racism. This phenomenon is worldwide. In 34 of 43 countries polled in 2002, the majority of people said they disliked America's influence in their country. In the quarter of humanity known as the Muslim world, anti-US hostility is at fever pitch, as we know. A Pew Trust research poll in 2005 concluded that anti-Americanism is deeper and broader than at any time in modern history. So speaking up for America, as I found myself, has become um, a lonely ordeal. Why is this? Well, now I, I have to um, take you on an uncomfortable journey, but um, as we try, don't we, to know the causes of things, I think I'm going to try and see if I can explain the causes of this particular thing. So. This is how America's critics assemble their complaints against the Pax Americana, what Kristen Kagan called America's benevolent global hegemony. Complaint number one. And by the way, I should add that in the course of researching all these things I'm coming up to now, um, I mean, you'll see a lot of references to, to various academic works. On the other hand, I must tell you, every one of these has been put to me around the world somewhere in recent years, face to face, head on. So these are not the musings of academics, they are completely real. Complaint number one, love of money. The more money America has, the more dissatisfied people have become with the results. People ask, if America is so rich, why doesn't it solve the problems of poverty? If it can't, it's not omnipotent. If it won't, it's not good. When America replaced Britain as the world's number one, it inherited the envy of the impoverished masses. From the viewpoint of Marx's economic determinism, Islamic jihadism against America owes more to Das Kapital than to the Koran. Marx, as you all know, better than I do, predicted and demanded uh, a radical transformation, what he called one great cleansing act. Today's enemies of America want the same. Marx provided <clears throat> the angry, the miserable, the poor, the discontented with a specific enemy, the capitalist exploiters, the bourgeoisie. He proclaimed a holy war, which gave the poor and the exploited not only hope, but something specific to do. As I Berlin described it, organization for ruthless war, with the prospect of blood, sweat and tears, of battles, death and perhaps temporary defeats, but above all, the guarantee of a happy ending to the story. Today's enemies of America feel the same. Meantime, ladies and gentlemen, surveys show that most Americans think America is just a scapegoat for the mistakes and failures of other countries. But it's true that by comparison with America, everyone is a failure. Americans have more of everything. Seven of the top ten banks, eight of the top ten companies, etc. And even America's friends suffer from schadenfreude, don't they? As Philip Larkin observed, some people are just too lucky. They get the fame, the girl, and the money all at one sitting. Which mightn't be so bad, the critics say, if it weren't for complaint number two, stinginess. Absolute figures to measure a country's generosity are less significant than the proportion of gross domestic product, national wealth, that a country devotes to foreign aid. On that league table, the US ranks 
22nd of the 22 most developed nations. And as former President Jimmy Carter commented, we are the stingiest nation of all. Denmark is top of the table, giving 1.01% of GDP, while the US manages just 0.1% of GDP. America is said to think it's cheaper to pay for defense against the rage of the poor than to pay to alleviate their poverty. President Clinton gave some credence to this view when he explained that Afghanistan was a cheap war, only a billion dollars a month. And as he said, at this rate, America could go on with this war forever. Complaint number three, vulgarity. While the poor dislike the rich, the cultivated poor dislike the rich barbarian. Paul Hollander, who's written brilliantly on this subject, cites an article on American air bases in Britain, published in Sanity in the 1960s, which was a publication of the British campaign for nuclear disarmament, which he says displays the characteristic components of anti-Americanism in Britain and in Europe as a whole. And this is what he described. In the officers' mess at Milden Hall, a champagne brunch is laid on. A young pilot, clad in a very zippy flying suit, festooned with bright badges, flashes, emblems, decals, numbers, and bars, sits at a table covered with fine linen, eating a giant cream puff with a silver fork. He has champagne there and three other types of cream cake, and as he quaffs away at both, he's deeply absorbed in the pages of a child's comic. As Hollander says, this little sketch of the American barbarian is a classic of the genre. goes on. There he is, the uncouth American, oblivious to fine linen and silver fork, in the heart of Britain where he clearly doesn't belong. He's the stereotypical childlike American absorbed in comics and dressed in an equally childlike manner. Not only does he offend good taste, but this immature creature wields awesome power. He flies the machines of destruction. For European intellectuals, I have found, the term American culture is an oxymoron. Bertrand Russell, for example, contrasted America's material wealth with its spiritual poverty. He wrote of the garish vulgarity of American civilization, its cheerless luxury. So it's interesting to ask, how did all this mockery of American culture begin? I discovered that in the 18th century, the degeneration theory, based on the work of Charles Darwin and others, held that there was something inherently wrong with America that made animals there smaller and people physically and mentally inferior. By the 1830s, the, the US was a laboratory for a new type of country. No monarch, no aristocracy, no traditions, no religion, and no rigid class system. It considered itself superior to the old European systems, which would be threatened if the American experiment worked. So it was that a contemporary French writer asked, could this American this other world looming on the horizon be our own future. The United States projects on the screen of our future a universe of appalling ugliness. In 1832, Francis Trollope, whose book Domestic Manners of the Americans shaped European perceptions of America in the 19th century, observed that the greatest difference between England and the United States was want of refinement, that polish which removes the coarser and rougher parts of our nature. In 1900, Uruguayan José Rodo wrote the definitive manifesto of Latin America. The title character representing Latin America personifies, he said, the noble, soaring aspect of the human spirit, spiritual in culture, vivacity, and grace. And the United States is depicted as Caliban, who embodies the spirit of vulgarity. Today, 
To many of its critics, America means cultural imperialism. Global U.S. media are said to be paving over precious national identities with a homogenized U.S. version of life. According to the English theater critic Ken Tynan, America makes people, he said, sell their souls for a pot of message. Americanization and American style have developed almost exclusively negative connotations, often combined with the adjective creeping, as in creeping Americanization. The term, I think, has come to mean the further development of despised trends, deterioration in the world of work, stress, insecurity, pressure, etc. The phrase working vacation is said to testify to this Americanization of work. So critics high and low brow now link hands under the unlikely banner, join the worldwide movement against globalization. Complaint number four, arrogance. A popular critique embraced with particular relish by America's critics is that American policymakers are insensitive to foreign nations and especially those in the third world. Norwegian Nobel laureate Knut Hampson found America invincibly and smugly ignorant of foreign peoples and foreign achievements a nation so taken with itself that it knows curiously little about others. This was the popular message of Leder and Burdick's book, The Ugly American. But Americans abroad, and American officials in particular, were insensitive to the beliefs of the people as they were seeking to defend from communism. That book, as you know, created the stereotype of the average American. The novel's ambassador Sears thinks of the natives as little monkeys. And he couldn't find on a map in the book the country in which he was given his diplomatic post. It was a political reward. According to the natives, he'd been sent over to try and bias like cattle. Complaint number five. Too distant from Europe. The founding fathers of America were determined to leave Europe behind. And now old Europe has its chance to repay the compliment. Anti-Americanism has served as a useful mobilizing agent for a new European role as a new power bloc an essential ingredient in the formation of a common European identity. Jean-Claude Trichet, for example, the governor of the European Central Bank, has pointed out that America accounts for only 30% of world trade, yet 70% of the world's business is transacted in dollars. This injustice to the new European superpower would be put right by the euro, he said. Complaint number six, too close to Israel, the American Christian Science Monitor recently asked about America, why do they hate us? And it answered that over many years, Arab TV stations have broadcast countless pictures of Israeli soldiers shooting at Palestinian youths, Israeli tanks plowing into Palestinian homes, Israeli helicopters rocketing Palestinian streets, etc., etc. And they know that the U.S., so, it, so they wrote in the Christian Science, they know that the U.S. sends more than $3 billion a year in military and economic aid to Israel. American support of Israel antagonizes all those who seek to protect the Islamic heritage. Anti-American and anti-Israeli sentiment converge, since both countries are seen as agents of modernization and westernization. Europeans see America as captive of the Israel lobby. Americans see European hostility to Israel as medieval anti-Semitism. Complaint number seven, too religious. When President Bush was asked by Bob Woodward recently whether he had consulted his father, George Bush Sr., given his experience of the Gulf War, about the invasion of Iraq, he replied, 
I consulted a higher father. Secular critics object to this claim of a direct line to the Almighty. They've heard God bless America once too often. And they note that American presidents swear their oaths of office on the Bible and end their inaugural speeches with the phrase, so help me God. Complaint number eight, irresponsibility. Critics say that America, the richest country with the cheapest petrol, is the world's greatest polluter. Yet it asks for tough environmental regimes for developing countries. Why? To saddle them with costly regulations, they say, that neutralize their competitive advantage of cheap labor. As every school child knows, with 4% of the world's population, the U.S. represents 25% of the world's oil consumption and produces 25% of the world's carbon emissions. For America's critics, that's enough said. Complaint number 11. <coughs> Too much power. American military expenditure is greater than the next nine countries in the world put together. Sir John Fisher, the head of the British Admiralty in Queen Victoria's reign, had his rule of twice by which the British Navy would always be bigger than the next two countries' navies put together. Today, America spends more on arms than the whole of the rest of the world put together. This year's increase in U.S. military expenditure is greater than the entire defense budget of the Eurozone. Hence, French Foreign Minister Vedrine's expression, hyperpuissance, which I'm told means beyond superpower, to describe what he called the hectoring hegemon. Whereas other countries are willing to use the sofa and the coffee pot as a means of dialogue, G.I. Joe prefers his sheriff structure, in guns we trust. To his critics, though, G.I. Joe is a trigger-happy warmonger, ready to destroy the planet. According, for example, to Nobel laureate Harold Pinter, the United, he said, the United States is the most dangerous power the world has ever known. Complaint number 12. I did warn you. Hypocrisy. Under a policy to contain communism, Rockefeller Foundation director Julia Swig argues the United States sponsored dictatorships and tolerated the subversion of democracy. She says it's guilty of what she calls monstrous imperialism. Yet it still has the nerve, she says, to disguise its conquests as humanitarian interventions and to, she puts it, rebaptize its wars as peacekeeping operations. Swig shows how America organized the fall of Latin American dictators, how it supported Greek, Spanish, and Portuguese dictatorships in Europe, how it's been unfaithful to the messianic mandate it claims for itself, as she puts it, after God himself supposedly granted it. Bitter memories persist of another 9-11, the 11th of September 1973, when the government of Salvador Allende, the democratically elected president of Chile, was replaced by a military dictatorship backed by the U.S., this was an era, an era, the critics claim, when American Cold War diplomacy made friends with all the tyrants on the planet, so long as they sided with America and its power struggle with the Soviet Union. To summarize, America's support for Saudi Arabia's feudal monarchy today is of a similar order. A good current example of this comes from inside America, from the creators of the now big hit US TV show, The Wire, which many of you will know. Anyway, the producer said, we ooze hypocrisy from every pore the end of the American empire, that's the Ur text. Point number 13, unilateralism. The European desire to exercise power through multinational cooperation stands in contrast to the U.S. administration's view that international law and the United Nations are often unreliable, and the defense and promotion of a democratic order still depends on military force. According to the UN Charter, a state can use force only in self-defense, 
after it has suffered an armed attack. But American foreign policy practitioners say that post 9-11, the concepts of preemption, imminent attack, legitimacy, and the use of force all have to be re-examined. Critics say this has eroded the concept of state sovereignty. They say America has created confusion over the sources of authority in the international system. Point number 14, incoherence. To the modern American eye, the Cold War must seem a golden age. Then America had a clear and simple foreign policy. Deterrence, colloquially known as MAD, mutually assured destruction. This kept the peace for 50 years. No country could attack America because it would be fearful of its own destruction. This compelling logic dissolved on 9-11 with the rise of suicidal individuals for whom mutual assured destruction was a blessing. A new foreign policy was obviously required and duly arrived. Unfortunately, there are several different versions which does not aid easy comprehension of America's true motives, but they do all at least have the same starting point. Question. What is the first duty of the American administration? Answer. To protect the lives of American citizens. From where comes the threat to the lives of American citizens? From Islamic terrorists. Why do Islamic terrorists threaten the lives of American citizens? Here are three different answers America has so far given to that question. Foreign policy number one, preemption. Why do Islamic terrorists threaten Americans? Who cares? Hit them before they hit you. As the first law of the Admiralty, Sir Jack Fisher, said about Britain's enemies in the 19th century, hit first, hit hard, keep on hitting. Result. As we know, hit first ended the no-first-strike principle of America's peaceful decades of deterrence. But as Professor Alan Dershowitz has pointed out, preemption has been claimed as casus belli by practically every dictator in history, including Hitler, has never been codified in international law, and worse, has never been related to any fundamental American ideology. Foreign policy number two, Middle East peace. Why do Islamic terrorists recognize American citizens? Answer, because of the war between Israel and Palestine. How do we stop that war? By occupying Iraq. How does that help? We send two good messages. To who? To the Israelis and the Palestinians. What are the messages? To Israel, America is now on your right shoulder, so you don't need, don't need to be so paranoid about peace with your Arab neighbors. And to the Arabs, it will encourage them to consider the fate of those who continue to be state sponsors of terrorism. Result? You know the result. Instead of bringing peace, which so being peace, the critics say America sparked a civil war in Palestine that makes peace more complicated. As Winston Churchill, I think, said, however beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. Foreign policy number three, this is the third version that I can detect, the reverse domino. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Why do Islamic terrorists threaten American citizens? The threat comes from the oppressed. So supporting oppression doesn't work. No, the oppressed rise up. What is the opposite of oppression? Democracy. Therefore, we need more democracy? Yes, a democratic domino. What is that? The reverse of the Vietnam domino. What does this mean? Didn't we say that if Vietnam fell, country after country would fall to communism? That was the Vietnam domino. So what's the reverse domino? Like this. If Iraq becomes a democracy, country after country will rise up to democracy. So if we start democracy somewhere in the Middle East, it will roll out from there. Correct. Why Iraq? The military call it doability. 
which country is doable to start the domino? Iran is too strong, Palestine is too complicated, Iraq is weak. Unfortunately, this had a hollow ring. It raised more questions than it answered. For example, if Iraq was condemned to invasion for not being a democracy, why not Saudi Arabia? Why not China? Complaint number 15. Baffled by the mystery of Islam. Whereas American presidents felt able to criticize communism itself, its entire philosophy, as the cause of poverty, today no president would criticize Islam in the same way. It's Islamic terrorists, a tiny minority of malcontents who are to blame for the insecurity of the world, not the whole philosophy of Islam. That difference makes America's approach to Islam too complicated for most Americans. It's as if America said during the Cold War, communism is fine, but we don't like certain Russians. Complaint number 16. I think this is the... I'm getting the end. Complaint number 16. Blocked by the Great Wall of China. U.S. economists, as you all know, contend that it is not possible for a state-controlled enterprise to thrive. Bureaucracy dulls its competitive edge. I'm sure Professor Estrin teaches this in his management courses. But China is apparently achieving the impossible. Thriving businesses, 100% state-owned, proudly flying the red flag in their boardrooms. They even have a name for it. They call it state capitalism, or uh, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. China's rise to prominence appears to challenge deep American ideology. It defies every American economics textbook ever written. Who would have thought it possible, particularly in this place, that it could ever be determined by a state, as an act of will by that state, that capitalism, being a good system, should be adopted by the state, which would own it and run it. You can see why this extraordinary synthesis of Marxism and capitalism is a little confusing for most Americans. American presidents used to reserve their main critique of communism to its economic failure to deliver prosperity. As President Reagan said of Soviet Russia, it is in deep economic difficulty. The rate of growth in the national product has been steadily declining since the 50s and is less than half of what it was then. This was, this was how it was always put. But, ladies and gentlemen, this doesn't seem to apply to China. Economists say that China will soon overtake America as the world's number one economy. Meantime, China's use of what Joseph Nye, I think, called soft power, has, according to polls, taken by the program on international policy attitudes in the BBC, led majorities of people in most countries to consider China a more positive influence and less of a threat to international peace than America. This is how Newsweek, which reported this poll, put it. As anti-Americanism grows, China is beating the United States at its own game. Complaint number 17. Not even a democracy. This has been put to me directly many times. Average turnout of 44% and the alleged corruption of the voting procedure at some presidential elections make critics question if America is, in fact, a democracy at all. So, so many countries, so many people, so many complaints. The accusations against America are endless. Perhaps they're all untrue. Joseph Kay protested his innocence on the basis that he was a victim of false perceptions. Perhaps America could do the same. After all, isn't the reality 
that the United States was the founding impulse behind the cornerstones of the international community, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the United Nations. Would many of today's medical achievements have been possible without the help of the USA? Doesn't much human aid and third world relief come from America? Isn't the attraction of America, its culture, movies, food, clothing, technologies, continuing to act as a magnet for millions of people the world over to visit and live? Isn't America the home to, of some of the world's great museums and orchestras, leading colleges and universities, state-of-the-art hospitals and medical research? Doesn't the rest of the world continue to send its elite, if not to Professor Estrin's course, then um, to be trained in American universities, scientific institutions and companies? Aren't 70% of all Nobel Prize winners American? Well, all this may be real, it is all real, but unfortunately for America, all of us know the power of perception over reality. As Hamlet explained, there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, David Kilcullen, who you won't know, seated at his desk in the counterinsurgency section on the second floor of the State Department building in Washington, was right to say, perception truly now is reality, and our enemies know it. Kilcullen noted that when insurgents ambush an American convoy, they're not doing that because they want to reduce the number of Humvees we have by one. They do it because they want spectacular media footage of a burning Humvee. Like the IRA before them, they are armed propaganda organizations. They understand political momentum. Yet so far, the notion of a war on terror has led the US government to focus overwhelmingly on military responses. In a counterinsurgency, according to the classical doctrine of Hefan, which was first apparently laid out by the British General Sir Gerald Templer during the Malayan emergency, armed force was only a quarter of the effort. Political, economic, and information operations are also required. So I would, I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you'll agree, that the jury of world opinion is no different to the jury in a court of law. It seeks motive and intent wants to hear America's true motive, and it wants it to be something good in the moral sense. We recall Alexis de Tocqueville's conclusion at the end of his epic voyage around America, 1870. America is great because it is good. When it ceases to be good, it ceases to be great. Now, policymakers in the U.S. administration may have good motives, Currently, they may see what they call a new kind of imperial mission for America. They may see, for example, how to bring an end to despotism in the Muslim world. They may see how the Iraqis might become a parliamentary democracy. They may see how Sunni and Shia could one day be just like Republican and Democrat. They may see that democracy could bring forth unpalatable electoral outcomes, extremist Islamist governments like Hamas, and accept that because they are so sincere in their belief in one man, one vote. But, ladies and gentlemen, whether the American motive is pure or not, the one certainty from all that we've been saying is that in recent times, America has proved unequal to the task of expressing it. At a time of war, the importance of this omission cannot be exaggerated. Napoleon knew the difference between victory and defeat in war. He said it was three parts moral, one part physical. To my surprise, I discovered that all generals agree. You can only win a war 
they say, if your troops believe they are fighting for what they call a noble object. When, as the Democrat candidate for president, John F. Kennedy, was asked how he intended to overcome the communist threat, he replied that what was required, more, what he said, more than air power or financial power or even manpower, is brain power. What he called the mastery of the inside of men's minds. So all the world could see, he said, what he called the splendor of our ideals. This is exactly what President Reagan meant in his speech when he gave his historic address to the British House of Commons on June the 8th, 1982. He said, the ultimate determinant in the struggle that's now going on in the world will not be bombs and rockets, but the strength of the values we hold, the beliefs we cherish, the ideals to which we're dedicated. And the president urged America never to allow itself, he said in a striking phrase, to be placed in a position of moral inferiority. So should we ask ourselves, what today is the basis of America's claim to moral superiority? What is America's true motive? The answer, as often happens, is in America's own hands, or more precisely, in the hands of the Statue of Liberty herself. She holds in her hand, as you all know, a tablet of bronze, inscribed with the date of perhaps the most iconic document in Western civilization, the American Declaration of Independence. And as Americans look forward to their July the 4th this year, which is going to be a year of great change and hope and renewal in America, I very much hope that America's leaders will heed Isaiah 51.1. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. And they will ask themselves, I hope, some basic questions. What made America the world's great superpower? It's not its land mass. China is bigger. It's not its population. Europe has more. It's not its mineral wealth. Russia has more. So what is it? What caused America's preeminence in the first place? It was, I think, Karl Marx himself, of all people, who described as well as anyone the American ideal of self-realization, the development of human potential in many different facets and directions for each person, so that a man could be, as he said, a hunter in the morning, a fisherman in the afternoon, a cattle rear in the evening, and a critic after dinner. Marx praised what he called the new America, as his phrase, a classless society, which offered, as he put it, the greatest possible development of the workers' aptitudes. In this, the new America followed Nietzsche's most consistent words of advice, his ethical imperative, become who you are, as in Zarathustra. If you would go high, use your own legs. America met the claim of men, as Aristotle put it, to be ruled by none if possible, or, if that's not possible, to be as independent as they can reasonably be. This is what Gunnar Myrdal meant by the American creed, the most explicitly expressed system of general ideals of any country on earth. This is what struck James Bryce when he wrote the American Commonwealth. He put it, the amazing solvent power which American institutions, habits, and ideas exercise upon newcomers of all races quickly dissolving and assimilating the foreign bodies that are poured into her mass. In the era of globalization, the mass today is the whole planet. Before the globalization of which we were speaking earlier, it was possible, at least in theory, for America to be isolationist, 
it was possible to say about other nations, as Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain said about Czechoslovakia in 1938, that it was a faraway country of which we know little. Well, now there are no faraway countries, there never will be again. Each day we have a clear, stark, and often most alarming view of our multi-ethnic planet. Well, Americans once brilliantly transcended the inherent fragility and insecurity of their own multi-ethnic community. In George Washington's own words, the bosom of America is open to the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions. Woodrow Wilson, of course, called it the great melting pot of America and made it the prototype of a diverse society. E pluribus unum, one out of many. I would say it's the new melting pot of the world that America can bring, if it can only find a way to express it, its unique message. America was born out of a desire for self-determination, a longing for the human dignity that only independence can bring. That's what the Pilgrim Fathers hoped when, inspired by the scriptures, they announced their aim to create a city upon a hill, their new Jerusalem. Americans of all national origins, religions, creeds, and colors would hold in common the ideals of the essential equality of all human beings, of inalienable rights to freedom, justice, and opportunity. America would embrace meritocracy before hierarchy. Its frontier spirit would mean anyone could do well if they were determined. In America, nothing would be impossible. Americans would breathe free, with freedom of speech and thought for all men and all women. These were the motives that made America the inspiration for so many millions of people, not its wealth, but its intense belief in its moral purpose. This is why I would say, ladies and gentlemen, it's such an error to think of Americanism as merely a belief in practicality and efficiency. True Americanism is practical idealism. Its aims, instead of being materialistic and mechanical, are idealistic to the point of being utopian. In this way, America can, I think, provide and express ideals which strike accord in humans everywhere, a declaration of independence on behalf of all the people of the world. I would say that to disarm its enemies and defeat its rivals, America only has to focus its intellectual energy and its vast economic resources on the policies which would help the world follow its lead, to find the language to project its founding ideology beyond its own shores, and to remind the world of its ultimate belief in self-determination, individuality, independence, and in democracy only as a means to that great end. To do that will require a marching tune people can respond to, so that Americans can once again, as the Pilgrim Fathers intended, show the world the American way. The outcome of the battle of ideas between Americanism and anti-Americanism will set the tone of the 21st century. It will be the decisive ideological struggle of our times. America has a fine ideology, but it's either forgotten what it is or forgotten how to express it. America's day is a sleeping beauty. It's time to wake her up. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, um, that was both a most interesting and most controversial, I suspect, uh, talk. And Lord Sarge has agreed um, to respond to questions. Um, so if people would like to uh, ask questions, there are people with microphones who are going to come around, and I'll point as uh, uh, 
to keep an order and it may be one question at a time. We'll take one question at a time and see how that goes. Could I ask people when they ask questions, please, firstly to say who they are and where they're from, and secondly uh, to ask questions rather than make uh, their own uh, short speeches. Thank you. Or even long speeches. Okay. Uh, you're first, I think. Uh, my name's Eric Bridges. Um, I'm an AS level student. Um, you said that America is a sleeping beauty and it's time to wake her up. At the moment, you have the American presidential uh, elections and candidates are campaigning throughout America. Which presidential candidate of which party do you think would be able to uh, reawaken America? I'm sure there's a very um, straightforward central office line to take on that question, um, which will probably be along the lines of not wanting to interfere in other countries' elections. So um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I hope very much that whoever it is will have, have a copy of this magnificent speech under his pillow or her pillow, and um, will heed Isaiah 51.1. My name's Eric Hazel, I'm just a member of the general public. Um, to uh, your list of people that, uh, list of uh, things that people dislike about America, uh, my I had um, uh, death squads, rendition, and Guantanamo. I think uh, what you're saying is very interesting, but something basically I think has gone wrong with America. Well, I mean, I, I think the, the polling evidence is very un, unsatisfactory. And so what you say is undoubtedly right. And in relation to the question, the previous question asked, I think we all, we all have to um, hope that the, the, this great change that's going to occur in America will bring forward um, a new level of interest in addressing this, this problem that, um, that you've identified and I've described. Thank you very much for that, um, Maurice Howard Davis from the OSC. Um, if you accept your uh, analysis of what is needed in uh, uh, the States and um, you have a astute chance of um, tipping a, parliament, a presidential candidate, but if you accept your rationale that that's what needs to happen in America, whoever it is wins, what is the appropriate foreign policy stance for a British government to take? in relation to America? Uh, should we just sort of not speak to them until they wake up uh, or adopt a kind of critical friend uh, or indeed be more vocal in our criticism if you accept your analysis? What should a British Foreign Secretary be doing? They keep a copy of this under their pillow at all times <coughs> and acting as a critical friend, saying, here's something that you haven't really... You're, sorry, here's something that your predecessors didn't really take as seriously as they should, which has had damaging consequences. You might not think it matters what all these people around the world think, um, but we as your critical friend I promise you that it does. And that in your own interest, if 
you can concentrate on this for a bit and do something about it, we'll, be, we'll help you in every way that we can. That would be good. But this is an answer really to what I think you're saying, which is what actual foreign policy prescriptions follow from this analysis. Um, I don't know, but this is, I don't know how, but this is a, to me this is a very good starting point. If you start from here, I don't think you'll go, you'll go far wrong. So something along those lines. Hello, my name is James. I'm from New York City. Um, I have two questions for Lord Saatchi. The first is whether uh, the points outlined in your speech are your views or the views of people that you've met along the way, as you mentioned, and to what extent that balance is. And then secondly, if someone like Al Gore had been elected in, the, in 2000, if you think uh, that the views on America would be much different and that most of these views are dedicated to uh, the current administration led by George Bush. Thank you. I'll try to explain exactly what the provenance of this lecture was, which is that, um, as I said at the beginning, having been very captivated by, by what I call America's intellectual leadership, it's been a source of great distress to um, feel this decline in the way that America was perceived by m many, many people I know around the world, people of high intelligence and people I greatly respect. So after a while of what I call this lonely ordeal of defending America around the world, um, I decided to try and study the subject. And I did that by asking the House of Lords Library, which is a magnificent institution, to provide me with um, literature on anti-Americans. Well, a truck came out. And I spent many, many months um, trying to read the literature on anti-Americans. Everything that I listed in my list of complaints, so-called, as I said, emerges from all the, there's an enormous literature on the subject of anti-Americanism, um, and they emerge from that. But as I said, I, I haven't relied on that, because I've had these points put to me, including the last one, which was the thing that finally led me to say, I'm going to have to try and understand this much better, which is, what, what are you saying, people said to me, America isn't even a democracy. Well, I found this so incredible. But... Um, perfectly intelligent, rational people say, have said that. And so, there we are. That's, that's why I undertook this um, piece of research. Yeah. Mm. I can't answer that any more than I can answer the question before. Other than that, it's certainly true, that, and to my amazement, people around the world seem to have picked up on the fact that something went wrong in that election with the way the votes were counted and that there was something wrong with it. So it's incredible. There you are. That's, that's what they're saying. Uh, my name is Alan Aroldi. I'm an LSE alumni. Uh, you mentioned about uh, American uh, ideals that makes make American great self-pursuit um, of uh, individuality, independence, democracy, and all sorts of justice. And in, in, in a word, American dream. Would that be just a disguise called egoism? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think so, because and I, 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 the best answer I can give to you is get a copy of the American Declaration of Independence. It's a very short document. If you're not in tears at the end, you will be moved at the end. 
and you will understand um, completely how America has become such a such a force in the world. It's that it's the it's the loss of that that I uh, lament. Um, try reading it. It's really short. It will take about a minute and a half, and you'll be very touched by it. I'm uh, Michael Tutorello, a student at San Lorenzo University. Um, you listed a number of ideals which you claimed uh, made America great. Prior to World War II, arguably the British Empire was the dominant power in the world. Uh, wouldn't you, and before that there were others, wouldn't you say that it was World War II and the Cold War and certain historical events rather than any 200-year-old ideas or ideologies that led to the rise of the United States in the world? No, I wouldn't agree with that at all. Just, just the reason that um, in those um, speech extracts from Kennedy and Reagan, um, I mean, one, one was looking forward to how America could defeat its great rival, which was communism, completely alternative view of the world, um, which was Kennedy. And then Reagan did actually preside over the, the fall of communism. So I think it's extremely interesting that they defined the nature of their rivalry with communism and that they, they, they one looking forward to how, the, how America could defeat communism, and the other describing how America did defeat communism, that they both um, described the, the expression of ideals. What does he say? The, va the values that we hold dear, the beliefs that we cherish. Um, I think that's it's true. That's what they thought would defeat communism, and I think that's what did defeat communism. So I think it was completely sincere and completely effective. And my, my lament, if that's the right word, is that the, the clarity of expression of those magnificent ideals has been lost somewhere along the way. And I'm hopeful that the great changes in America will, will revive that. Only if they keep the speech under their pillow in the White House. Well, Lord Satie, I'll keep it brief there. I'm Francis Malidi from the University of Westminster. Um, I have three short questions for you. Um, first is, is it not hypocritical of Europeans to be so anti-American when we've stood by that several atrocities happened in the world recently, like Rwanda, the Congo, and we've been very weak in the United Nations. Only the WTO really has any um, influence in the world. Number two, I was wondering what your views were on uh, Michael Moore's work on bowling for Columbine which I thought was a very uh, good internal criticism of the psychology of the United States. And number three, if the Conservatives went into power, would they be much more critical of the United States um, than they have recently been in opposition? Um, you're saying in your first question, you think we, when you say we, you mean Britain, not America. Britain in particular as well. interacting several atrocities in the world, you know, there's been genocide and things like that, where we criticize, Europeans don't take any action at all, but criticize American interference, but yet we could criticize our own indifference to what's going on in the world, and would that not equally critical? Well, um, let me take your first question and your last one, which is conservative party policy. So, um, I think what you're saying is that we as a country should be more distant from America. But I think I prefer. Um, 
critical. Okay, well, I, I think I, I prefer um, Sir Howard's prescription, which is there's a sort of popular phrase, which is critical friend. You don't know exactly what that means any more than I do. But um, in my version, it would be to try and encourage much more, much more concentration on this problem that I described. Concentration on this problem, focus on this problem, would bring good results, one way or another. So that would be that would be my answer to your first and last. Uh, that, uh, Michael Moore's films, I think, are, until the last one, absolutely terrific. But um, I don't know what I don't know what Columbine. What, what do you mean in terms of Columbine? Um, that it's divide and rule within the United States, and they try to rule by paranoia, particularly the oligarchs and the people uh, who, who wield the real power in the United States. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, yes, I mean, that's, he makes some, lots of criticisms of American society. That's um, one I didn't bring in, but I mean, it's, it's many people feel the way that he does. Hi, uh, my name is Jennifer. I'm from Canada originally, but I left a long, long time ago. Um, my question is, given America's image problems worldwide, as an advertising guru, um, what do you think should be done to change people's image of America? Um, is a foreign policy change enough, a change of administration enough, or can an advertising campaign, if you will, uh, be more effective? I can't say an advertising campaign being um, at all relevant or effective. It's only, a question of what your, it's only a question of what your priorities are. And if an incoming president regarded this problem as a serious problem, they would, they would do things about it. And it would inform American foreign policy. That's, um, that's my hope. And beyond that, I, I can't offer a particular, or I don't want to offer a particular prescription. But I think good things would follow from the starting point that this is, a, this is not how America should be seen in the world. And um, in the end, will be, will be damaging. The Americans may not be that convinced that that's actually true. They may not be that convinced that it matters. That could be the point. I hope that will not be the tr true of the next president. Norman Lamont, the House of Lords. Um, one of the criticisms that the top will uh, postulate that might be made eventually against the United States was because of its huge size and diversity, that it might become a polity dominated by lobby groups. Do, do you think that is a criticism that's been borne out? It's what they say, isn't it, as, as, as Lord Lamont says. But aren't we, all, aren't we all very impressed with the way that American democracy is working in these primaries? Don't we observe this and think, this is, a, this is what I think in medieval jurisprudence is called trial by ordeal in which the politician who um, pretends to offer himself as leader uh, is put through a, a genuine ordeal which tests everything about his, his her stamina, um, character, um, ability to withstand pressure. I find this a very admirable, I find this a very admirable process. So yes, I mean, they do complain, don't they, about lobbyists, but watching all these primaries, um, I can't help myself but find it very instructive and inspiring. I don't know what role lobbyists are playing in, this, in these campaigns. If they are, I can't see it. 
my name is Graham Goddard. I'm an alumnus. Um, I can't help feeling that the wheels on the economic wagon in America are slightly are beginning to creak a little bit. There's talk of recession. Uh, there are countries uh, saying that they don't want to pay for oil and dollars anymore. There's the overseas sovereign funds having to prop up the American banks to a large extent. Do you think economic humility will have any impact, or is the juggernaut just too big that it doesn't make any influence at all? Well, I, I take very seriously what um, the, the Newsweek poll, which I quoted, about the way that China is perceived in the world, I think is very important for a, a new American president to consider. Because according to um, a very nice partner in Price Waterhouse, who I met the other day, they have a marvelous model for forecasting when the Chinese economy will overtake America as the, and become the number one economy in the world. This is going to be a most tremendous turning point in all our lives. Our whole generation has grown up with the idea that America is the number one economy in the world. It's a given. For that to, when that change happens, if, according to, to the, the informed analysts, it will do quite soon in 2020, 2022, 2025, something like that. They, they do this just by extrapolating Chinese GDP growth and American GDP growth, and you come to a crossover point, which is around then. But the psychological impact of that on the world and on America is going to be remarkable. And I would say that the Chinese... I don't know much about the Chinese society, but from, from what I've been able to glean and gather, um, they do think ahead. And I think the reason why the Newsweek poll finds that um, China is better thought of than America is not an accident, because they will be preparing for the time when you read China overtakes America. And instead of the world saying, what a calamitous moment, according to these polls, they won't people will say that's good, which is absolutely astonishing, probably the most astonishing change in our entire generation that's going to come around. And so this is another reason why in answer to your question over there, I very much hope that the next president will take this very seriously. I'm going to take one more question. Yes. I'm Antonia, Southbank University, and I was uh, wondering if America is sleeping beauty Will there? I didn't quite. I didn't quite hear. Hold the microphone a bit more. America ahead. is a sleeping beauty. Yes. So who could be Cinderella, keeping that metaphor? Euro Asia. Um, well, I hope Cinderella will be. Will be um, whoever is the. British Foreign Secretary and the next Conservative government. Thank you very much. Well, on behalf of the Department of Management and uh, all of LSE, I'd like to thank Lord Saatchi for a very stimulating uh, talk and, and excellent question and answer session. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you.